Hello and welcome to this podcast from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is acclaimed biographer and historian Jenny Uglow, whose previous books include Lives of Hogarth, George Eliot, Elizabeth Gaskell, and Thomas Buick. Her latest book, A Gambling Man, focuses on just one decade in the life of Charles II, the 1660s, the decade which saw the restoration of the monarchy and all the hopes and expectations that accompanied it. Jenny tells not only Charles's story, but those of his court, his wife and mistresses, and of the country at large. It was, after all, a decade that saw the country go to war with Holland and confront the horrors of the Great Plague and the Fire of London, a decisive decade in many senses. When I met Jenny, I asked her first about the title. Why had she called the book A Gambling Man? The idea of a gambling man, or calling him a gambling man, wasn't present from the beginning, but it was present when I looked at the way he behaved and, and, and the choices he made and the way that he never quite let people see what was in his head. And I think it just happened. It's often like that with book titles. You, you're working away or putting these together and you say, well, what are you writing? Oh, I'm writing about this with a gambling man or something. And then it, it becomes a book. And without one knowing it, you've got to, you've realised you've, you've worked out a, a clue or a way of uh, approaching it. Charles returns to England just short of his 30th birthday. And I, you mentioned a moment ago mm. the things which had shaped him. Can you say a little bit more about the, the influences which you think were important before he got back to England yes. uh, in 1660? I tried to talk about his past really while he's on the boat coming across from Holland to England and um, recreating himself as a new person, as the as a king, which he never expected to be. And all those influences that have built up on his past, his idyllic childhood in Whitehall with Charles I and Henrietta Maria suddenly being taken away. So the the memories plus the sudden uncertainties and knowledge of death and war and then the exile and the poverty and the charm that he had to employ which had turned out to be a very effective weapon but also he'd been a poor relation in France where his much younger cousin Louis the 14th was rising to become a grand and extravagant and autocratic, indeed absolute monarch. And there's some envy of that. I think Charles would quite have liked to be that. He came back with that. But he'd also been uh, with his sister, Mary, who was married to William of Orange Senior, as it were, in in Holland. So he'd been familiar with problems, as it were, of the Dutch Republic, but also the new ideas, the new science and mathematics in Paris, Descartes, Gassendi, microscopes, telescopes, everything in Leiden. So he came back to England with a, a set of new ideas, but also a very strong sense of the glory or dignity of the old regime. But he didn't really have a model because things clearly couldn't operate no. in the way that they had operated before, but he didn't, there was, there was no model he could turn to and think, well, that's, that's the kind of monarch that I need to be. There was no model. I mean, Europe actually very, very diverse. It went from absolute monarchies to republics. But also with the death of his father in 1649, the very fact of the execution of the monarch somehow removed some aura of divinity from monarchy. And in practical terms, 
many things had been abolished, the feudal dues, which actually the monarch could call on for finance. And when Charles came back, he had to find a way of working with Parliament, who had voted to call him back, and also who now held the purse string. So he was in a completely new situation. He was allegedly the monarch who summed up the whole of the country as were in his person. But actually, in order to rule the country, he was dependent on Parliament. And you mentioned the, the purse strings there, and it's clear mm. all the way through that cash is a really important issue. And, you know, running his court is not, a, not an inexpensive business. Cash is vital. And it's running the country and running his court and his private life. And he certainly was extravagant and his mistresses were extravagant and he wanted to set up separate establishments for his wife and he married Catherine of Braganza. But it wasn't simply court extravagance. I mean, he actually had to pay the civil service, he had to pay the army, he had to pay the navy and the taxes that were raised were hopelessly insufficient. It's the first time that a monarch called on Parliament in peacetime and Parliament tried to work out a sort of formula which would say how much it cost to run the country. But first of all, their their estimate was far too low. And secondly, they didn't even raise the taxes to fill that low estimate. So Charles was constantly in debt, constantly begging for money. Tell me a little bit more about the court, because on one hand you've got the extravagance and the balls and the masks and so on, but you also show a sort of darker side of the court where reputations were delicate things and women in particular Mm -hmm. found it very hard to establish themselves and the duelling and so on. So what, what what kind of environment do you think the court really was? The court's fascinating and it is a dangerous place. The court centres on Whitehall in London which itself was a huge rambling palace and it's very hierarchical in the household. There are these sort of intimate servants with the gentlemen of the bedchamber and then there are grooms of the bedchamber and there are pages of the bedchamber and they're little tight circles and they all know each other's gossip and when the women come because they come as the same sort of attendants to the Queen or to the Duchess of York as it happened they're immediately sort of eyed up because the court when Charles arrived was actually quite a kind of laddish place with its own language and yes people got drunk they gambled, they duelled but more than that they're like a little sort of closed group with their own jokes and and so forth and then women entering get sort of pounced upon I mean they're seen as, as little sort of tidbits for the for the courtiers so it was very hard to maintain a, your reputation which which was vital to do so so it's a friendly place to a certain degree but there's also a sense of jockeying for position because the ruling at this point too is also done from the court it's like a private cabinet there's the parliament and there's the privy council which is the official committee body to to rule the country but then charles's gentleman of the bedchamber the bedchamber was his most intimate place where he could talk directly they had tremendous power so there's a lot of jockeying position to to get in there with the king you describe Charles's sex life, I think, as both a bonus and a drawback. Mm. And I suppose that relates to 
perceptions of the king, and he was a, he was a monarch who was very conscious of how he was perceived. How, how did the sex life play into that? It played into the idea of the monarch in an interesting way. He, he, when he came back to um, England, he was 30. He was very tall, six foot two. He was tremendously good looking. He was very athletic, very physical. And the number of mistresses that he'd had seemed like, you know, quite a good thing because they proved not only that he was sexy, he was virile, he was potent. And some of that energy was going to flow into the country. And then he married Catherine of Braganza, but already there were problems because he had a powerful mistress, Barbara Villiers, uh, who was a direct rival to the Queen. This wasn't really widely known for a time, but it did become known. And then when he also fell in love with another mistress and the gossip sort of got going, it became very easy to start blaming the court and particularly blaming Charles's adulterous ways for all the disasters that were falling because his own queen Catherine of Braganza had no children but the mistresses did so it seemed like a curse of God so instead of the virility being a good thing it became a bad thing and then also I mean there were more stories still you know that during times of crisis he just uh, uh, became impotent altogether I mean he actually lost that potency and was a sort of limp feeble figure it's, it's very fascinating and very uh, sort of alarming the frankness with which people actually talked about what the king was getting up to hmm. in bed sometimes he seemed to be his mind seemed to be completely on pleasures and not on yeah. affairs of state at all but then when the great fire comes he he was behaving like you might expect a you know a modern day sleeves rolled up kind of engaged monarch yes. which really surprised me the fact that he was out there taking charge and involved in the um, yeah. trying to stop the fire yes he he was a very intelligent man and his ministers called him lazy in fact if you actually look at the way he ruled the country he was quick and he was sort of ruthless and he didn't like to be seen in action. He would actually manage to get his ministers to do the things he wanted to do. But that mind was really working. And so I think that that's when, when you get the fire, he actually steps forward himself because it's absolutely typical of Charles to get the reports, to immediately go and see, go up river to see what is happening. And then they and then to organise, I mean, to set up rings of outposts of firefighters, to organise for, as it were, refugees, for food to come in from different places, people to be looked after, and actually to go round to the firefighters and talk to them and rouse them. And then with that same physical, energetic young self too, he and the Duke of York did literally stand in line with buckets up to their ankles in water and their sleeves rolled up and fight the fire. And it wasn't at all an act, nor was it a piece of propaganda. I think that's a moment that Charles genuinely cared and was terrified for the sort of fate of his his city. In terms of the, the intellectual climate of that decade, you mentioned the Royal Society and it was a decade of philosophy and writing of all sorts and questioning. That's, that's something which comes up. Do you, do you think his restoration enabled something to happen or was it something which was already happening in any case? To, to what extent did the restoration play a part in the intellectual developments? 
the restoration played a huge part in the intellectual developments because although both in science or even in theatre or in writing things were happening all over the place what happened when Charles came back was that people flocked to the capital it's that coming together of different groups so that say people who've been working on experimental research in Cambridge in Oxford and in London actually met together or the reopening of the theatres had been sort of different companies in different places it all came together and to actually have a figure who could patronize them who could say this is the royal society you know this is the king's theater gave it a great boost so the restoration didn't cause this change in ideas but it focused and crystallized and gave it terrific impetus maybe jenny i can ask you finally how easy or difficult did you find it to to capture Charles the man because Mm. he seems to have masks and is obviously a public actor but Mm. at this remove how possible is it to get close to Charles the man well uh, who knows (laughs) you can get close to Charles the man externally It's, it's almost as if you're standing behind him looking not at him but looking in a mirror because of the way people react to him. You know, the way he has terrific charm and charisma. He'll talk directly to you. You're the most important person in the world. He's also funny. He's impatient. He's brisk. He takes people by surprise and so on. He drives some ministers mad. He's lazy. So you can build up that picture of what it's like living with him. But he was very careful not to give himself away he does sometimes and it's a flash of anger or a flash of passion and then you hope that someone's on hand whether it be Clarendon or Pepys or to actually scribble it down but I think watching him move through time in an odd way and seeing what he does and how his attitudes change is the closest you get to Charles the man and you see somebody grappling with difficulties but also sometimes just shutting themselves off and deciding that you know they they can't cope it's a perfectly human thing or they can and they don't give a damn what people think about them and and so on so you can get close but you you never have a a confessional you never have a the man himself pouring his heart out to you 